Good evening, brothers and sisters. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we draw near to you this evening, just acknowledging that you're the rock of ages, that you have made a way for sinners to draw near to you by protecting us by the blood of Jesus, by sheltering us under the rock, Lord. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us that's filled with rock-solid promises that we can trust in and truths that we can believe in that trump all of the craziness in the world around us, Lord. Thank you for the gospel, Father, and I just pray that tonight you would give us all wisdom and vision to be able to see be able to see the truth, to be able to see with your wisdom instead of with our own human wisdom, and to be able to see in the scriptures the truth that gives life and the truth that is a light to our feet and that guides our path, Lord. We need your Spirit's help, Father, to come and to guide us and to give us instruction and to make things clear that would otherwise be hard to understand, Father. Father, it's hard for us to understand why something so horrible would happen like to Miss Kay this afternoon, losing a grandson at just the age of 20. Father, I pray for that family that's just in the very beginning of a long road of just pain and sorrow over this, Father. I pray that your special presence would be with Miss Kay and her family. Give her wisdom and give her grace. Give her family your comfort, Father. And God, I thank you so, so much that you are working even in these things where we do not understand. And God, I thank you also for the life of Miss Bunny's brother-in-law. I pray that you would uh, be with them as they mourn, as they grieve the loss of her brother-in-law, Jim, and as they travel to and from Memphis for the funeral and I pray that everything there would be done to honor and glorify you and that the gospel would be preached clearly at the funeral. Father, I pray for Hal and Mary Margaret as they transition this long journey with the new baby and all these different uh, things going on all at one single time. It's so much to handle, Father, so they need grace. They need your presence and your guidance and your help. And we know that you're giving it to them and we thank you for it, Father. God, I thank you also for the missionaries that we send out. I thank you for the RBNet missionaries. I thank you for Tiago. I thank you for the work they're doing, and I just pray that you would bless them. May their work be multiplied and more fruitful uh, than they could ever imagine. And may you multiply it upon multiply it upon multiply it, Lord. And I pray the same thing for APC and all the endeavors and aspects that our church is involved with in missions, Father. We know that this is your heart to reach the lost, and we're thankful that we get to play a part in supporting these people, Lord, who are out there doing these things, and we just pray that your blessing would be upon every work that is taking place and every dollar that goes into it, Lord. And Also, Lord, I pray for our church. I pray that you would 
just continue to grow us, continue to bless us, continue to work here to refine us and make us holier and more like Christ. Help us to have the mind of Christ, Father. Help us to have unity and love for one another. Help us to have close fellowship with one another where we can be honest with each other, where we can tell the truth to one another, where we can lean on one another for help and support and love, and that we don't have to feel like we're going it alone in this, in this difficult journey in the Christian walk, Lord. And God, I also just pray for the Delphin family. I thank you that they're visiting with us again tonight, and I just pray for them as they're making this major transition from coming across from the Philippines to go to seminary, God. I do pray that you would just be giving them all the resources, all the strength, and all the material basic needs that they need to be able to set up their new life here. And as they adjust to... uh, Taking on this whole new life of going to school, I just pray that it would go smoothly and that the adjustment would especially be comfortable and smooth for the children as well. And Lord, I uh, thank you so much for this chance to come before your throne to lift up our request to you. And I ask, Lord, that now you'd open your word to us, illuminate our hearts, and help us to understand what you would have us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So the text for tonight is Exodus 33. Please turn there. So this is the account of this is the account of Moses acting as the mediator for the people after they committed the great sin that Seth preached on a few weeks ago with the golden calf. Turn there, Exodus 33, and I'll read it. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. And Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, the tent, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, 
but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please, show me your glory. And then he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So when it comes to a passage like this, brothers and sisters, we live in a world where people often have views of God that are quite backwards from the way that the Bible actually teaches that God should be seen. Many people reject Christianity. Many people reject it because they think that God is cruel. They say he does not save everybody. Why is he so cruel as to not save all people? They might say, how could a good God allow people to go to hell. Something like this. They'll accuse God in this way. When people speak this way, though, they make two big mistakes. Okay, They make two massive mistakes. The first one is that they tend to trust their own human wisdom over and above the wisdom of God. And the second one is that they downplay their own sinfulness. Okay, So they're actually looking at God wrong, and they're seeing it with their own human wisdom, and then they also look at themselves wrong. Everything is out of joint when you're asking this kind of question. So the question they asked, how could a good God allow people to go to hell? And so we don't want to just dismiss this question as if it's a stupid question, because there's so many people out there asking it, and you might have asked it yourself before. Instead, we should seek to humbly answer the question by looking at the Bible and seeing what is God really like and how does he really act? Who is he? And this should actually help to clear up the question. This should help us get a clear answer for why this type of thing takes place. So when we ditch our own wisdom and we study the Bible and uh, study what it actually says about God, we realize that we have to instead begin to ask our questions in a different way, right? We ask our questions differently as Christians. We ask our questions differently as people who are invested in doing what the Word says. Because all of a sudden we put God's wisdom first and His insight first. And we see our sinfulness and we see ourselves for who we really truly are. 
And when we start to do this, all of a sudden our thinking begins to become conformed to the truth of the Word and what God has to tell us instead of conforming God's Word to our thinking. Right? We begin to conform ourselves to the Word of God. And once this begins to take place, instead of asking, how can a good God allow people to go to hell? Instead, we'll soon find ourselves asking a much more difficult question, which is actually, how can a holy and a perfect God allow sinful people like me to go to heaven? That's the real question we should be asking ourselves, right? And we come to that conclusion by submitting ourselves to the Word of God. So tonight we'll see, to our pleasant surprise, that the Bible teaches these three things in order. Even though God is holy and can't stand the presence of wickedness, He still saves sinners for His own glory. Even though God is holy and He can't stand the presence of wickedness, He still saves sinners for His own glory. Let's look into this. God is holy and He cannot stand the presence of sin and wickedness in in His surroundings. So, remember that the reason why the Israelites are in this predicament in the first place, the reason why they're uh, in this, this position where God is having them at a distance and where, ha- where Moses has to act in this mediatorial role and try to bridge the gap between them and God is because they've just sinned this grievous sin at the golden calf. They worship this man-made image of a calf instead of worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. This is a horrible act of idolatry, and this has actually caused God's anger to burn against them. His wrath is burning against them. He's furious about this because he does not want his people to worship anything but him. And so verses 1-3 to begin by showing us God's consuming holiness. It shows us this aspect of how holy God truly is. So let's read verse 3. There, this first section of 1-3, to and then we'll just sum it up in verse 3. God says, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. They're a stiff-necked, rebellious, sinful, wicked people. And God tells them, I'm going to consume you if I go with you. What God is saying here basically is this. He's not going to not keep his promise, okay? So he's going to fulfill. He's saying, okay, guys, you're disobeying me. I'm still going to fulfill my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob like I said I would do. I'll still take you to this promised land, and I'll still defeat all of your enemies. But I'm not going to be there with you. I'm not going to go along with you. God knows that if He were in their midst, if He were there going with this rebellious, stiff-necked people, treating them kindly, blessing them in their midst, and they continued to scorn that and cast that off and continued to sin and rebel against Him even though He was so kind, He knows that eventually that would bring His wrath to the point that He would destroy them. He would wipe them out because He is a God of consuming holiness. And this is a theme throughout the Bible, this consuming holiness. For instance, Deuteronomy 9, verse 3, it says that God will go before Israel, consuming their enemies. He's a consuming fire that will take over their enemies, right? And then in Hebrews 12, 29, we see there a quote. It says, our God is a consuming fire. That's His identity. He's a consuming fire. He's a holy God. So in this new suggestion that God gives to the people of Israel... 
Instead of His special presence going up with them and going along with them the whole way, instead they would only be led by a generic angel, just a created angel. Instead of the angel of the Lord who represents God's presence right there in the midst of the people, instead He would just send an angel. So, my translation, it says in verse 2, and I will send my angel before you and I'll drive you out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. So there it says my angel, but if you look at the text there, in a lot of translations, it just says an angel. Right? It's, not, it's not the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the one who represents his special presence. It's just an angel. It's just someone to get them from point A to point B and defeat their enemies. This angel would take them to their destination. And then tragically, God's presence and His blessing for that people would end. Tragically, they would no longer have God's special presence with them. And that's because God cannot dwell in the midst of this wickedness. God cannot stand wickedness and sin in His presence. He's a holy God. Starting to see God clearer now, right? So still on the topic of God's consuming holiness, in verses 7-11 to also build on this concept. They show that God is a consuming fire, that He cannot dwell in the midst of wickedness. Again, we see that. Moses' tent says here in verse 7, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp. So this is a temporary tent that he's setting up a temporary little tabernacle that is built and it's filled up outside, the, outside of the camp, away from the people of God. Okay, it's distanced. This is a new thing. God wants to dwell in the midst of the people. He longs to be right there in the middle of them, but now because of their wickedness and their rebellion, Moses is taking this and setting it up away from them, far from them. This is not what God wants though, right? God wants to be in the midst of them. God wants to be with this people, not stiff-necked and rebellious, but, but people who trust in Him. And so this tent being set up outside is a, is a symbol or a pointer to the fact that the people now have this gap between them and God. They have this distance formed between them and God because of their sin. One commentator says, this is a sort of excommunication of the people an excommunication of the people. Does it, if you know what excommunication is in terms of like church discipline, it's when you put someone outside of the church with the hope that that stress on that uh, conviction of being put out would actually cause them to repent and come near again, right? So this is a form of excommunication of them. The, the presence of God is put far from them. It's away from them. And it's intended to bring them to a point where they want to draw near to God. So this is actually a sign that God is being patient and that He hasn't fully abandoned them yet. He's showing that He is holy. So in other words, He's showing again He's holy. He can't dwell there in the midst of them, but He's still showing them a little a love and a care in the sense that He has not completely abandoned them yet. He's still giving this time frame. So the last way in this section that we see God's holiness on display, that we can get a clearer view of who God is. Remember at the beginning I said we want a clear view of who God is. And once we get a clear view of who God is, we can see clearly when we read His Word. We can see clearly when we start to do thinking about God, do theology. When we start to make questions up like, how could a good God allow people to go to hell? 
Well, first you've got to understand what he said about himself. You've got to understand who he is. So the third reason is, the third reason in this section where he shows himself to be this holy God is in verse 11. In the fact that Joshua is sent to guard this little tent outside of the camp. It says there, The Lord spoke to Moses' face, Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. After that, he would leave. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. You know Joshua. He's the one who the book of Joshua is named after. He's going to come as Moses' successor. This is a holy man. This is a man of faith. This is a man who could be entrusted with guarding the presence of God. Okay, so he's, his role here is to actually keep all the unclean, the stiff-necked, the rebellious people away from the presence of God. His job is to guard that tent. And it's interesting because Aaron and his sons and the Levites and those were supposed to be the ones guarding God's presence. But since they were the ones who formed that horrible golden image, they obviously couldn't do it. So Joshua has to come in. And you see here, God is showing again His holiness. He can't stand wickedness in His presence. He needs to take this righteous man, Joshua, to have him guard the front of this entryway, to guard this tent, so that people don't come and hastily and wrongfully come towards Him. So hopefully our understanding of God is now beginning to become clearer. Helping us understand this question that we asked at the beginning. The clear message to us is that God is a God of consuming holiness and He's full of purity, only purity. His holiness cannot stand in the presence of rebellion or hatred or idolatry or wickedness. So it makes a lot more sense now why after the fall into sin, we realize man can't stand in the presence of God. Man does not have any right to enter into the presence of God on his own. It makes sense that there's a place like hell that exists, right? It makes sense there's a place like hell that exists for people who will not put their trust in Christ. For people who will not find righteousness elsewhere. Because God is holy. And He does not stand the presence of wickedness in His, in, uh, in his midst. So the reality about this is this isn't a satisfying answer, right? For those people. The people who ask that question and who don't submit to God and who don't want to hear what His Word has to say about who He is, they're not going to find this likely to be all that satisfying of, a, of an answer. They're still going to want to rather worship their own ideas. They're going to rather worship their own wisdom. They're still probably going to want to underestimate their own sinfulness before God. But nevertheless, this is the biblical picture that we're called as Christians, called as people, all over the world. We're called to submit to this view of who God is. His holiness and His righteousness. And so now that we see God clearer, now that we have this picture of who He is, instead of wondering how people could go to hell, instead we should begin to wonder, how is it that I get to go to heaven? How is it possible that a holy God allows anyone into heaven? Anyone to be into His presence? So that leads us to our second part. So though God is holy and can't stand the presence of wickedness, He's made a way to save sinners. Praise God, He's made a way to save sinners. And it is great news that even though God is holy and that He has judgment and wrath upon sin, God remembers mercy, Scriptures say. God remembers mercy. So verses 4-6, through six, they, 
illustrate this for us. They show that God remembers mercy and has made a way to save sinners. The first reason is because He instructs them to lay down their ornaments. He instructs them to lay down their ornaments and to repent. To come near to Him in the right heart, the right frame of mind. Just before this, just before this section where He instructs them to lay down their ornaments, God gives us very intense and stern warning or this very intense declaration of what happens when people reject Him. God says, I will not go up into your midst. And we already said that if He did, He would consume them. He would not go up in their midst. Imagine this. this the people here respond and they say that this is bad news in verse 4. Some translations say it's a disastrous word. It's a disastrous word from God to say this to the people. But imagine this. We talked earlier in our Exodus series about the name of Yahweh. And one of the senses of His name is it literally means I will be with you. I will be with you is wrapped up in the very identity of His name. But could you imagine any worse news than that the God whose name means I'll be with you says I won't be with you. I'm not going to be with you. I'm not going to go up with you. This is the ultimate in bad news. But after this, God gives us a clear instruction. He gives the people of Israel a clear indication of what they are supposed to do. They're supposed to repent. And they're supposed to lay down their ornaments. Read verses 4-5 to with me. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You're a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. To do to you. So this image of taking off ornaments. That's like their jewelry and their different things that they had on their clothing and stuff like that that was outwardly flashy or whatever they were decorated with. This is, a, this is a picture in the Scriptures of when people are mourning. But here it's also a clear commandment of God. It's a clear commandment associated with their act of repentance. And so the point of this whole losing of the ornaments was so that outwardly, in their outward expression, in their bodies, in the way that they looked, they would be hopefully displaying what was going on on the inside of them. It wasn't just an outward thing that you could somehow do this outwardly to earn God's um, favor or whatever. It's something that's just a display that's supposed to indicate what's going on in their heart. So after God has given this heavy word of judgment upon them, and after God has been acting in these ways to show them their guilt and how holy He is, He then gives them this opportunity and this instruction that they ought to repent. So we should hear this today, each of us. We should hear this as a call to repent, to lay down. If we're distant from God, if we're living in sin, if we, even if, like Pastor Thomas was saying today, every day is an act of repentance as a Christian. We should be people who are laying down our ornaments. We don't have anything to bring to God that will please Him in our own strength. We need to find our strength from Him. We need to express our repentance to Him in that sense. By laying down these external things, these external things that we might be finding our identity in, finding our peace in. The human heart, we tend to underestimate God's holiness. 
and we tend to underestimate our own sinfulness. So we're commanded by God to forsake all of our idols, to take off our ornaments, to remember who we really are before God. We need to remember who we really truly are, and that's what God's calling the Israelites to here. And that's similar to in Revelation. God rebukes the church in Revelation for for forgetting that they were wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He says, you've forgotten this. And that's kind of interesting to think about. He's saying that's wrong to forget that. And that's how you should think of this whole act of taking off your ornaments, this act of being humble before God. The Christian at his best is a person who's in this state of consciousness where they know their true position before God. They know that they're born in sin. They sin every single day. There's not a single day where we do not sin. And so how could we not be humbled before God? How could we not acknowledge that we contribute none of our own ornaments, none of our own goodness? We ought to take those off. We ought to put our trust in Christ. We should repent. And that's what Israel is being called to here with this clear instruction. This is God's grace there, calling them to take off your ornaments, repent. And this is also a marker. These ornaments are also a marker of something that they had gotten before in Egypt, right? Because God was the one who won them all of those ornaments. When they left Egypt, the Egyptians gave them all these ornaments. And now they're being called to lay them down. So we can learn from this that God is basically saying, listen guys, your obedience today is what matters. It's not the fact that I won these victories for you in the past and all these wonderful things that took place and now you're rich and now you think you can just live luxuriantly. No, your Christian life is a life where you lay down your ornaments every day. God does not care so much about the past if you today are neglecting Him, if you're today stiff-necked towards Him, if you're today not a soft-hearted towards Him. If you neglect your worship and your service towards Him today, then the past is of no use. He's calling you today. So when they are reflecting on these ornaments, they're saying, yes, God, we're starting anew today. We're taking off our ornaments, the things from the past, and we're trusting you anew for a new thing today. There's another aspect that's this idea that um, in this taking off of the ornaments, in verse 6 it says, the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. So a lot of people think this actually means that from then on, they didn't wear them anymore. They say that they use these ornaments maybe to build the tabernacle, to build those things, to do those things. But from then on, they were not wearing these ornaments. That, that They were in a state of humility from then on. That kind of reminds me of the commandment of Jesus to, to the lady, go and sin no longer. Right? Go Those ornaments are off. Live a life of repentance. Live a life of newness before God. And so in addition, again, we're answering this question and we're answering this concept that God has made a way to save sinners. And the first part was because He gives an instruction for them to lay down their ornaments and repent. And now we see that He's actually given them an opportunity, that He's given them patience. He's given them His own patience and kindly long-suffering action towards them that gives them a chance to repent. There's a few ways we've already seen this so far, but throughout Exodus, you'll remember we've seen this idea of His patience with the people. God is not just instantly, immediately going to wipe the people out, but He still expresses patience with them. And this patience of God that is something that allows Him to save sinners like you and me 
is seen in verse 5 there. It says, Now therefore take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. This means he's being patient with them when he says, that I may know what to do to you. This means he's not yet finalized his final verdict yet. He has not made the final call to wipe them out and dis- dismantle this people group. And some people would look at this and they'd say, well, that's God showing uncertainty, or he's deliberating, or he doesn't know what he's going to do. But that's not at all the case. It's not as though God doesn't know the future or that he's confused or he doesn't know what the right thing to do is at all. That's not what he's doing here. What he's doing is he's expressing patience. He's graciously communicating to the people in a way that they could understand in order to give them time and a chance to repent and live. That's what he's doing. He's giving them a moment where he says, let me decide what to do with you. Because if it was not a patient God they were dealing with, they would have already had their verdict. And again, that goes back to our question we started with. Why, when, when man fell into sin, did God not just wipe everyone out and start over, right? God does not do that because He's a patient God. He wants people to have an opportunity to repent and live and come to Him and find life. And so this idea of that I may know what to do with you. Almost God asking a question. This is elsewhere in Scripture too. In Hosea, in 6 verse 4, it reads, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew it goes away. God's not confused there. He doesn't not know what to do. He's just offering this call to repentance in the form of a question, saying, I'll be patient. It's not God being confused, but it's Him pleading with the people, listen to me, repent. Listen to me, come back to me, repent. That's His constant cry as a patient God. A patient God who's made a way to save sinners. Even though He's holy, He's making a way to save sinners by being so patient and loving. So let's take a flashback to the tent idea. We were talking about the tent and how the tent is outside of the camp. Well, earlier we saw that the tent was... There and it was showing that God was far away from them. But this actually is a display of him giving them a chance to repent, that excommunication idea. We bring it back up here. This whole thing is intended, this excommunication, like I talked about, is intended to make them more remorseful, more penitent, more sorrowful. But not only that, God could have said, I'm not talking to you guys anymore. I'm not giving you any avenue of access to me anymore. But instead what he does is he sets up this little tent and Moses, their mediator, their prophet, their communicator, he's allowed to still go out to that tent and meet with God and still bring back words to the people. Can you guys see the patience and the love of God in that? Can you see the way that God is showing them patience in that? He's actually still communicating with his word to them. He's still bringing that prophetic word to them. Take off your ornaments. Repent. Trust in me. Turn to me. Don't live in this wickedness anymore. That's not unlike unlike our whole experience as people in our Western world. We're living in the midst of a world where many people reject Christ. And every day, and even people in this room maybe, sit here, listen to the Gospel preached. God's being patient. He's being patient. He's letting you hear His Word. 
He's letting you hear the truth. He's letting you receive some of His eternal truth and His gospel preached. And that, that's not something you want to take for granted. That's not something you want to take for granted. And we see these tragedies happening around us. Your life could end at any minute. God is a patient God, but don't presume upon His patience. Don't presume upon His patience and foolishly not come to Christ. Don't not listen to His Word when it's so close by, like those Israelites had that Word so close by. So this main way, the main way now that I want to pull out this fact that He has made a way for us to be saved as sinners. The main thing is that God has provided a mediator. God has actually come, and in verses 12 to 22, as we'll read, God provides a mediator. He remembers mercy and He makes a way to save sinners because He's given a mediator. Someone who's a go-between. Someone who can bring them to God. Someone who can do this work that they could not do, that their ornaments could not do. So Moses is a special man in this picture. He's a special mediator between Israel and God, and he points to the great mediator, the greater mediator who's Jesus Christ. That's his role here. He's to point us to Jesus. He's to show us Jesus Christ. We see that Moses is this special prophet, this special man, because we see in verse 11 in the previous section before we got into 12 to 22 here about the uh, intercession of Moses on behalf of the people. We see there that it says Moses spoke to God face to face. It's important that we take a minute to explain this face to face concept because it's not to be taken too literally. What it means is that they spoke directly to each other. Okay, in, a, in voice to voice, directly to each other. And the reason it's not to be taken too literally is because we see later in this very own passage, which it's always amazing when the Bible just so quickly explains itself. If we have a confusing thing face to face, in this same passage, it says there in uh, verse 20, no man shall see me and live. So that's confusing. It says he spoke to him face to face. And then no man can see me and live. But it's explaining not to be taken too literally. What it means is that Moses is a very special prophet who gets to speak directly to God. It does not mean he looked directly into God's face because no man can see God and live. This is supposed to indicate to us the intimacy and the special role of Moses as a mediator on our behalf, uh, on behalf of the Israelites. And then it's supposed to point us to Jesus who's a mediator on our behalf. Basically, what we think of here is that Moses is receiving as much of God as any sinful human is able to bear. That's what face-to-face means here. He's getting as much as can be taken. He's getting it in such a special way, but he's getting as much as you can bear without being killed. That's what I'd like to point out that this is like today. So this face-to-face is different from other prophets. That's why I think Moses here points us in such a special and profound way to our mediator in Jesus Christ is because he's different than other prophets. And the reason is because other prophets would get their messages, you know, often from an angel. Or they'd get their message from a vision. Or they'd get their message from a dream. It doesn't always say that they spoke to God face to face like this. This is a very unique, special moment. So here Moses receives direct speaking face to face. And this is in a more intimate and familiar way than what we're used to. So This especially points us to Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand that's the core of it all. Though God is holy and can't stand the presence of wickedness, He's made a way to save sinners 
largely because He's given us a mediator. He's given Jesus Christ as a mediator. So Moses wants the full presence of God on behalf of the people. Moses is entering into the presence of God, and again we see God's holiness here. Moses can only handle so much. If he handled more than that, he would die. God is holy. Moses enters cautiously, reverently before God. But thankfully we see that through the mediator, through this work of Moses, the presence of God is again made possible for the people of God. This is the message we need to hear today about Jesus Christ. So Moses wants the full presence of God. As we see in verse 12 there at the beginning, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. He doesn't want just a generic angel. He wants the angel of the Lord in his presence. He wants God to not just take them over there to the promised land, to not just come with them with an angel, but he wants actual God's presence with the people. He will not be satisfied with anything less than that. Anything less than this would not do in Moses' opinion. Moses is not, as the mediator, going to be okay with that. He's going into God's presence to plead that God would not leave them. That God would not leave them there without His special presence. And in this way, Moses actually says, he says, you know, it would be better for us to live out here and die in the desert than to go into a special land with milk and honey without you, God. That's what he's saying. He's saying it would be better for us to just die here than to go into that special land alone, without our Savior, without our God. And this again speaks to us today. How many people would come in accusing God, asking that question, why would a good God allow people to go to hell? But they don't spend any of their time here worshiping God. They don't spend any of their time here praising Him. Why would you go to heaven, which is a place where all you ever do is praise God in His presence constantly, if you don't ever do that here? right? So Moses says, I don't want to live and die in the desert. I, don't, I would rather live and die in the desert with God than to go to this promised land without Him. So many people want to go to heaven, or they accuse God and say, you should let me go to heaven, right? But guess what? They don't want God to be there. They don't want Him to be there. They don't want Him to be the object of worship when they get there. Which is a crazy thing to think about. But Moses here boldly comes before God and he proclaims and he claims this promise and he wants God to be in their presence. And thankfully, because of the work of Him as the mediator, He makes this a possibility for them. He makes this a possibility for them to actually have the full presence of God and ultimately pointing to Jesus who's really the one who makes this all possible for any sinner. So the favor of Moses. Moses finds favor in God's sight. And so here before we saw that he made the presence possible as the mediator. We also see that he makes the favor of God possible uh, as the mediator. And verse 13, look there. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your, in your sight, Show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. So Moses knows that he's, he's allowed to speak to God still. He has not rebelled against God. He has favor in God's sight and he always has. 
But He wants them to have the favor too. He says, consider this nation. Moses is interceding on behalf of this nation. He wants assurance that God is merciful and that He will not let His people go. He wants that to be solid. He wants that to be confident and rock solid. He wants that to be confirmed by God. And that's why he comes and he says, yes, I know I've found favor. I know I've found grace. And I'm thankful for it. But please don't forget about these people. Don't forget about my brothers and sisters. Don't forget about the Israelites. And because Moses has made this intercession, we see in this passage that because he's stepped in, because he's acted as the mediator, the covenant agreement between God and the people is allowed to continue. It's allowed to be reinstated. It's allowed to carry on. The mediator is later told that he has found favor in God's eyes and that he will be given rest. So in, in verse 14, it says this. It says, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's God speaking to Moses. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And that same rest is going to be passed on to the people. The same way that you and I in Christ Jesus, we receive the rest that we've always been longing for. We receive the rest, the Sabbath rest of Jesus. And that's what he's doing here. Moses receives favor. He's promised rest. And because Moses has, and because he's interceded on behalf of this people, they also will get to taste of this goodness. They'll also get to taste of this rest. And so another thing, the mediator makes the people holy. He makes them unique. He makes them so that they can dwell with God. We read about this in verse 16. Moses pleads on behalf of the people and he says, How then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So Moses wants God's presence to be there with them because if His holiness is with them, if His Spirit, if His work is amongst the people, that means that they are going to be different. They're going to be set apart. And so the, mo- the mediator works this on behalf of the people, that they will be set apart, that they will be holy, that they will be unique. And in verse 17, we see that through the mediator, God will do that and that He will set them apart. It says, The Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Because of what Moses has done here as the mediator and the intercessor, God says, I will do this thing. I will call this people. I will make them my own special people. I will make them my unique, set-apart, holy people. And we know that only because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the same thing is true of us as the church, right? Jesus is our intercessor. He's our mediator. And what he does is he calls and elects and he brings in a special group of people that he washes clean. And he lives in us with the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit lives in us, we're literally like this special group of people in the world intended to reflect the glory of God, intended to be separate and unique like Moses wants the Israelites to be here only made possible because of the mediator. And when he talks here, finally God closes this aspect about the mediator because he talks to Moses and he says, Moses, in an intimate way, he says to Moses, I know you by name. I know you by name there. I read it already, but in verse 17, um, I will also do this thing that you have spoken for you have found grace in my sight and I know you by name amazing 
God looks at this sinful man, Moses, and He says, I know you. You're my special chosen person. I know you by name. In the same way He knows Christ so intimately. He knows Christ by name even more closely than with Moses. And then what happens? Because of that, because we're intimately connected to the Mediator, because we know Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ knows us, then when we step before the Father, we can sing like in the song tonight, His, our name is graven on His hands. My name is graven on His hands, right? God knows us by name. Because He knows the Mediator by name, He knows us by name. He knows Jesus. He knows us. When He looks at us, He sees Christ. He sees this Mediator working on our behalf constantly. And so we've seen that even though God is holy, He's made a way to save sinners. And He's done this by instructing them to repent. He's done this by showing them patience. And He's done this by providing them with a Mediator. And now let's look at the fact, the why for all of this. The reason behind all of this. So even though God is holy, and even though He cannot stand the presence of wickedness, He still saves sinners. Why? For His own glory, He does it. For His own glory. He doesn't do it for any other reason than for His own glory. In this section where Moses is mediating on behalf of the people, we have this image of Moses spiritually wrestling with God in a similar way to the way that Jacob wrestled with God literally earlier in the Bible. Jacob said, God, I won't let go until you bless me. He he said, I won't let go until you bless me. Moses said, I will not go forward unless you come with me. God, I won't go on until you come with me, unless you come with me. God, how will the nations know you and how will your nation be different from all the others if you don't come with us? It will look like you failed, God. It will, look like you di- it will look like you did not do what you said you were going to do. It will look like you failed at your task, God. Your glory will suffer because of this. What about your glory, God? Don't you care about your glory? Moses is claiming the glory of God and he's spiritually wrestling with God in this moment, in this speech session that we just watched, that we just read. Moses appeals to God's own name. He appeals to God's own glory. That's the reason why. That's the reason why it all makes sense, right? Even though God is holy and can't stand the presence of wickedness in His sight, He still saves sinners for His own glory. The reason why is for His own glory. So this relates to what um, is probably the most disliked passage at least in this chapter, but by some people maybe in more than just this chapter, which is verse 19. Let's read this very controversial passage together. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. This is the passage that Paul quotes in Romans 9 when he's trying to prove the much debated topic of unconditional election. God is saying, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion for my glory. Paul quotes this passage when he's arguing the following. He's arguing, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy 
which he has prepared beforehand for glory, for his glory. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So God has, for His own glory, chosen to be gracious to some hell-deserving sinners. This ultimately makes the whole story of redemption make a lot more sense now. And it helps us to understand those questions we talked about at the beginning. It allows us to understand how a holy God could let unholy people come into eternal life with Him. This is the whole reason why Jesus Christ came to earth to die on the cross. It's for the glory of God, ultimately. It's ultimately because He wants to save some hell-deserving sinners for the glory of His name. And many people take issue with this doctrine of unconditional election. If you haven't noticed that already, you, should, uh, you probably don't have internet or you probably don't have friends. <laughs> but... Uh, This is a contentious topic. We know that Scripture teaches it clearly, though. We see it already. We see it so clearly in what we've read so far. The Bible teaches that not everyone receives mercy in the sight of God, and that the reason that some people do is not because anything special about them. There's nothing great or special or unique or interesting about them. But it's because God in His infinite and beautiful grace has chosen to save some of them. That's what it is. So Paul says, when he's elaborating on this in Romans 9, he declares it very plainly. He says, So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's not of him who wills. It's not of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's his unconditional grace, his free and electing grace. And so at first, this may seem unfair to us. It might seem confusing to us. But that's only if we hold to a man-centered view. That's only if we hold to a view based on our own human wisdom. If we see God rightly, if we see Him the way He's described in Scripture, as absolutely holy, as a consuming fire who justly punishes sin and who cannot be in the presence of sin, then we're not at all surprised to see that His objective is not to appease man's Um, own limited perspective or his own limited ideas or his own misinformed sense of justice as to what God should and should not do with the things he's created. But it's to exalt his own glorious name. God's whole goal with everything he does is to exalt his glorious name. And this will inevitably remain frustrating. It will inevitably always remain confusing to anyone and everyone who has not come to taste and to see the glory and the goodness of the Holy God who's taken it upon Himself through Jesus Christ to set them free from sin. Right? This will remain confusing to people unless you understand I am the person who deserves to go to hell. I am the guy. Me, myself, and I. I'm the one who deserves to go there. I'm the one who does not deserve to have God's lavish favor. His rest, His grace, His eternal life. I'm that guy. This will remain confusing. It will stay in the dark for you 
It's set up this way. The Gospel is set up this way so that you must first acknowledge what you deserve. You must first acknowledge what you deserve and what your sin deserves before a holy and a just God before you can see. Before your light can come into your eyes and you can understand these difficult things. But if we can taste and see God's goodness and we can see His work in saving sinful people like ourselves, then we can recognize the beauty and the glory of the doctrine of unconditional election. All of a sudden, it's not so confusing. It's not so frustrating. It's all of a sudden unbelievably good news. To me, it is. And these benefits of it are, are tremendous. The benefits of understanding it and seeing the Word this way are tremendous. Uh, these are summarized in a, in, in a sermon by John Piper that he preached on this same passage. And the reason I like to use this is because there's, he, he gives four H's. And you can, you can easily remember them. They're really helpful. The doctrine of, election, of unconditional election means, one, humility for the best of saints. Two, hope for the worst of sinners. Three, help for the cause of missions. And four, homage to the name of God. Humility for the best of saints. What that means is no matter how holy you are, no matter how holy you are, if you're 90 years old, you've been a Christian for 80 years and really trying to become holier, and the Spirit has really been at work in your life, no matter how holy you are, you're still just a sinner saved by grace alone. So it's humility for the best saint. It's hope for the worst sinner. If God chooses people, if He saves people by His unconditional election, that means there's nothing you could do. There's no depth of disgusting sin you could have partaken in. There's no wickedness you could be that means you're out of the kingdom. That means that if you put your trust in Christ, that you cast yourself on God. And if His Holy Spirit calls and saves and regenerates you, there's no... There's nothing you can do to make this an impossibility for you. So come to Him. His arms are wide open. Christ's arms are open to the worst of sinners. This doctrine means hope for the worst of us. This doctrine means help for the cause of missions. This means no matter how stubborn the listener or difficult the mission field, there is no person that can resist God's saving grace. His plan to reach the nations will succeed. Whoever he wants to bring in will be brought in. And it brings in homage to the name of God. No matter how hard you work, or how well you preach, or how much you love, ultimately, all the glory goes not to you, not to me. Because we understand we ourselves deserve nothing. The glory goes to God. God did this for His own glory. So we understand that even though God is holy and He cannot stand the presence of wickedness, He still saves sinners for His own glory. Let's look at the final moments here as Moses interacts with God to see what we have to look forward to in heaven. To, To see what we have to look forward to as redeemed sinners who don't deserve to go there. This is what we have to look forward to. So Moses is here. And remember that God is so holy He can't be looked at. We saw that in verse 20. So again, this reminds us that God is a consuming fire. So Moses is interacting with God who's a consuming fire here, who's totally holy and can't stand the presence of sinfulness. 
So here in verses 22 to 23, Moses is only permitted to look at the back of God. Or you could think of it in the language like the passing by or the shadow or the after part of God, whatever that means. God's after parts, you could think of it like. He's only allowed to see that. He's not like looking at him fully. But here it is in verse 22 to 23. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses is here hidden in the rock, the rock of ages. This symbolizes the protection, the atonement of Jesus Christ as the mediator, the one who saves us in the face of this consuming fire. Moses is hidden. He's protected from this holiness of God. And here Moses, in his sinfulness, in his weakness, is allowed by God's grace to see a little sliver, a little part, a little part of who God is. And today you and I, we too, actually get to see in part. We're not fully there yet. We're not 100% there yet. We're not in heaven yet. We've not yet fully 100% looked upon the glory of Christ to the fullest extent that we ever will. But one day we'll be able to see perfectly. One day we'll be made 100% like Jesus Christ. And that I know because in 1 John 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed... We shall be made like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So we finally, when we get to heaven, when we finally get to this place where we're with God because of His grace, because of the work of His mediator, because of the way that He has made a way as a holy God to save wretched sinners like us, finally one day we're going to be able to look at Him and be made like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Right now, we're in a time when things can sometimes be foggy. Like we started out with a question. We live in a world of questions and difficulties, things that people struggle with, sometimes honest, sometimes accusing God. But we live in a world, even as Christians, where things are foggy, where some things are hard for us to capture our heads around. In fact, some things are impossible for us to wrap our heads around. And when we struggle with the way that the world is, thankfully, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 has this to say. It says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, when we get to heaven, then we'll see face to face. Face to face for real this time, though. Face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So for now, we are perfectly 100% known. Each and every one of you, if you're in Christ, Christ says, I know you by name. It's like he says to Moses, I know you by name. We're 100% known. But our knowledge is still foggy. But we have a day to look forward to as those who don't deserve to go to heaven. Those who don't deserve to see God. We have a day to look forward where we're going to see Him fully and be made like Him. So let's pray. Father, God, we cannot help but um, bow before your 
amazing gospel news and your amazing goodness and how holy you are and the fact that you would make a way for people like us to be able to come and see your face, to be able to come and draw near to you is too good to be true. It's too good for us to even wrap our minds around right now, but we thank you that it is true. And we thank you that we have this hope. We're never going to die. We're never going to die because we're hidden in the rock. We're never going to die and be consumed by that fire because we're hidden in Jesus Christ's blood, protected by Him. We have eternal life to look forward to and a resurrection to look forward to and a life now filled with the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to live with, Father. God, You're so good. Thank You for this time together. And uh, be with each of us as we go into this week. In Jesus' name, Amen.